Welcome to Athlete on Fire. This is episode number 29. I am Scott Jones, your host, as always. I am very excited and truly honored to interview Mr. Hal Higdon today. And this is part of the next two weeks, uh, a series that I'm going to do with contributors to the 27th Mile, which is a compilation uh, for runners and by runners. Uh, Mr. Ray Charbonneau actually edited the whole project. And this collaboration is going to One Fun Boston to support the victims of the the horrific and awful Boston Marathon bombing last year. Anyway, I thought this would be a great time to do some running-specific stuff. We have the 2014 Boston Marathon coming up here in, in a few weeks. And a lot of you guys are out there getting your long runs in and, and trying to get inspired for this event coming up this year. And I, I think it's going to be an inspiring and overwhelming, overcoming uh, type of deal. So I'm excited for our guest today. He's got over eight decades of experience in writing and running. He is an elite runner himself. Uh, I think you guys are going to see just two two guys talking about life and, and trying to relate the finer points of, of running and writing to the rest of the world, which is you. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Thanks a lot. Prepare to be inspired by some of the most successful athletes on the planet. This is Athlete on Fire, your daily source of amazing stories that will ignite your pursuit of excellence and inspire you to be and do amazing things. Now, I have one question. Are you fired up? Hey, welcome to Athlete on Fire. I am Scott Jones, your host. I am really excited today. I have a legend in the running community, specifically the marathoning community. Uh, he is a, a renowned author. He's a renowned runner as well, and he just released his new book. It's called 40943, and it's about Boss, the Boston Marathon last year uh, in 2013. So I'm really excited to announce my guest today, Mr. Hal Higdon. And it's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So we are calling from across the country, and uh, Hal's down there in Florida. I'm up here in Colorado, and, and somehow it's rainy and nasty in both places. So I don't know how we figured that out. Uh, yeah, it's one of those winters, but I can't complain about the weather in Florida because I know what it's like uh, back, way back home in Indiana where we live during the summer. Yeah, so where in Indiana Indiana are you from? We're right outside Chicago uh, on that little strip uh, of Indiana, the Sun Lake, Michigan, uh, just south of the Michigan border. Oh, very nice. So, Hal, really quick, let me before we get too deep into this, let me explain to you how the show goes, okay? All right, we have three segments. Uh, the first segment is Athlete Defined, uh, and we're just going to get to know you a little bit. You know, if there's listeners that don't know who you are, they will by the time we're done with that segment. And we're going to dive into Athlete on Fire, which is the second segment, and that's really, you know, what's going on competitively when you're, when, when you're competing at a high level, what's going on mentally and physically uh, when you are competing at that level. And then lastly, uh, we do something called Athlete Inspired, and that's going to be for our listeners to take – Take away some good little tidbits and nuggets that you're giving them and, and get to know you a little bit more in a, in a different way at the end, all right? I'll be with it. All right, so we're going to dive into Athlete Defined, get to know you a little bit. Uh, so I want, I want you to take us back to when you were 15 years old, okay? And it's a Saturday morning in the middle of the summer. Where in the world are you and what are you going to be doing all day long? Probably out at the beach uh, getting a good suntan, hanging out with the best-looking uh, girls in the city because I was – an undefined athlete back at that time. I had not quite discovered myself as a, uh, having some talent. So uh, I was basically wasting my time uh, 
uh, at the beach and on the golf course and doing other things that uh, teenagers continue to do even to this day. That, that's been a popular answer. So, so which beach are you talking about? Um, South Shore. I uh, live on the south side of Chicago uh, and uh, quite frequently either uh, went swimming at Rainbow Beach on 75th Street or the South Shore Country Club. So really quick, how do you know that they were the prettiest girls around? Because they had to be if they were hanging out with me. Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> I just had to, had to find out. You know, you know the, the male ego, you got it. Of course, of course. And so this question dies in right to the next question. I have, I kind of have an a, obsession with finding out where people are from and what their childhood was like. So take us back a little bit. What were your parents like? What was your childhood like? You know, what kind of work ethic was instilled, if any? And, and just take us back to, to that time of your life. Well, I was growing up on the great south side of Chicago, uh, and my father was a magazine editor. He uh, edited the Phoenix Flame, which was published by the Phoenix Metal Cap Company uh, for its customers. It's called a house organ, and he was very good at what he did. He won a lot of awards, and, um, and so I think that sort of set out the career path that I would eventually find myself. But at the same time, uh, I also had some talent in art, and at one point in my career, hoped to be a comic uh, strip artist. That never happened, but uh, uh, we had a loving family. I was an only child, therefore very spoiled. Uh, my mom was a full-time mom back when uh, that was not that unusual. So, uh, yeah, I have no complaints about my childhood. No, that sounds great. And th- this is a question I've been asking a lot of my guests. Uh, if you think back to your parents... Is there something that was really quirky or, or a story that you can share that just makes you really crack up when you're when you're thinking back about them? Well, gee, I just don't uh, know about cracking up. But uh, what was different between my father and me was he was very, very sedentary, and um, he basically he got home from work at uh, about five thirty on a Friday evening. He got into his pajamas, and he didn't get out of those pajamas until it was time to go to back to work at uh, 9 o'clock on Monday morning. Uh, so had a pot belly, smoked, and did a lot of the things that I would never do. So while he inspired me in my writing, uh, uh, you know, that was something that uh, was, was different. And, and probably totally acceptable because, you know, we didn't have the rules, so to speak, that uh, forced people who are cigarette smokers out into the uh, outdoors if they want to have a cig. Yeah, definitely. So... So your dad wasn't active. Uh, at some point, you obviously took up running. So really quick, before we get into how you took up running, let, let's just let our listeners know a little bit about you. So uh, Hal Higdon, of course, if you look up marathon training online, your name will, will pop up to the, to the top. And, uh, and, and why is that? Uh, because I've had some very, very successful training programs, which over the years I figured out uh, something that works not only for elite runners, but particularly for what you might call the mid-pack runners, which is the majority of running runners uh, working to get today. When I first got into the marathon, I was very unsuccessful at it, dropped out of the first three uh, marathons that I ran uh, because my mistake was I was trying to win the race, not try to uh, finish the race. So um, it took me a while to figure out the proper training, to um, pass this information on to others. No, and that's great. And I, I think you've probably touched and helped 
uh, numerous thousands of people, of course. And and along the line of, of marathoning, you, you've written a lot of books you know, on the subject, but on a lot of different subjects. And you're so gracious to, to send me a copy of your most recent book, 40943. And that was the time that was on the on the clock when everything stopped up in Boston last year. And It was. If you were watching CNN, they kept replaying that scene over and over and over, almost to agony of the runners coming toward the line and then the smoke and the sound and people falling down and screaming. And if you looked up at the clock... You saw it going from oh three to four nine forty three to forty four to forty five as as the agony continued and to me that felt like the logical title uh, for my book for a book about the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah, and you know I I just want full disclosure here. I, I'm not a journalist and I'm not trying to get journalistic, but I did read the book. I am a runner. I I, I appreciate everything. So. Really quick, the the one thing that I took from it is, is perspective. You know, if you if you've never run before and you go run three miles, those are going to be that's going to be the hardest run to date that you've ever run. It's not until you go run ten miles or a marathon until you realize that that really wasn't a big deal. And something yeah, and really it isn't because if you follow one of my eighteen week marathon training programs, the longest run you do that week is six miles, and then about two months later, uh, as the program continues, the uh, I will be telling my runners, you know, you used to think six miles is a long run. And what's your attitude about that now? Because you're now doing 10 to 15 miles, and they look back at a six-mile run, and they almost laugh because it become very, very easy or relatively uh, easy if they follow the program intelligently. So I think one of the things that my reasons my programs have been successful is we are able to take people with at least a, a minimum of fitness and and over a period of time, uh, take them to the starting line of the marathon and to the finish line as well. Definitely. And and I, just speaking to perspective on, on one more count, you know, I'm reading the book and there's a story about this woman who who got some really bad blisters and her sock was bloody. And if you've run long distances, you know, that's that's a pretty common occurrence. It's uncomfortable at best. And after all of all after everything went down in Boston last year, she kind of speaks to how, of course, that didn't matter anymore. Why do you think it's important? Why, why do you think that 40943 is important for, for runners to read and just gaining perspective on what really went on and how everything's moving forward from that? Well, I think, you know, you beat me to it when you use the word perspective because that was sort of going through my mind in that particular runner. I believe it was Heather Lee Callahan uh, was having trouble with her feet. She had to stop in at the aid station uh, to have her look at the, at the blisters on her feet and she got into the medical tent, and she was in agony and wincing because she didn't want to look down and see the blood and feel that she was going to lose her toe, toenail. And then the bomb went off, and suddenly they were clearing the tent, and all the people with injuries that were really not injuries, they were little twitches in their lives, like uh, blisters and, and sore caps, and now they were bringing in the people with real injuries, people who were almost on the verge of bleeding to death, who had lost their, their legs even, you know, both legs blown away. So I think runners, we need to take that into perspective that some of the things that we seem important to us really don't rate that much in the world chain of things. So, uh, and I suppose you could almost say that only, and I use this word sort of guardedly, only three people died that day. Uh, only 260 people were injured. And, you know, compared to some of the tragedies we've had in the world, 
that's almost next to nothing. You hate to say that a single person's life is next to nothing, but, but, you know, I think one of the reasons why the Boston Marathon bombing was so important and so caught the world, Anderson Cooper of CNN being in town for two weeks covering the aftermath of it, was it was sort of a unique uh, attack on what other people might have thought was a soft target. You know, in other words, uh, spectators, runners, you know, it wasn't like a, a real war target. And uh, I think, you know, we feel that, you know, the terrorists were attacking each one of us, each one of the 23,000 runners on the course at Boston that day, but the literally millions of runners in the country and around the world. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll probably touch on and go back to 40943 throughout the, the interview today. You know, I, I want to wrap up with Athlete Defined with a little more personal stuff about you. So, so in your life, when you need to gain perspective, you know, if you hit a writer's block or you're just not feeling motivated for, for a run, you know, what, where do you go mentally to, to, to get to a good place? Well, I have to think how lucky I've been. You know, basically, um, I gave a talk to the uh, Florida Striders, one of the running clubs here in Jacksonville, Florida, last night. And, um, you know, basically they asked me how I was able to run 111 marathons and not get injuries, you know, no serious injuries all through my career. And I had to say biomechanics. I have excellent biomechanics. The Kenyans have excellent biomechanics. The Ethiopians... That's why they win the races. They're very light on their feet. They're able to almost float over the ground. And now they're finishing in two hours plus. Uh, a lot of the people who follow my training programs are not merely three-hour-plus marathoners. They're four-hour, five-hour, six-hour-plus marathoners. So I think we all have to uh, put into perspective the fact that we all are given certain God-given talents, and it's what we do with those talents that count, uh, you know, not not uh, how fast we run in the marathon or the success we might have in other portions of our life. Yeah, for sure, Hal. That's that's awesome stuff, man. So before we go on to Athlete on Fire, the middle segment, I I have one more question for you, and that is what's the most inspiring thing that you've ever witnessed in person that has to do with athletics or competition? Well, I think it was when I was very, very young, and I was, uh, well, young, I guess, in my 20s. Seems young now. Anyway, I was in the Army, stationed in Germany, um, I had uh, gotten slowly into the sport of running. I was out for track in high school, didn't do that well. Went to a small college where I was the top guy in the conference, but it was a small conference, and so I didn't realize how good I was. And I was sent to uh, Germany as a member of the U.S. Army and happened to attend a track meet in first Nür- uh, Germany, actually just outside of the town of Nuremberg, and running in the track meet that day in the 5,000 meters was Emil Zadepec, who had won the 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters, and marathon in the 1952 Olympic Games, and I wasn't content to uh, watch him from a seat in the grandstands. I was right up against the fence so I could get as close to Zadepec as I could, and I watched him um, uh, beat the, the top German runner, Heinz Laufer, uh, and uh, it was just a very, very inspiring moment. And at that time, my best time in the 5,000 was uh, uh, 1540 or something like that. And over the next year, training, maybe uh, by the inspiration of Emil Zodek or so, I knocked a whole minute off my time. And that next summer, I was on the track at uh, Firth uh, running against the same Heinz Lauber. It wasn't good enough to beat him, but it was in the same track meet that I had seen 
uh, Evo's not a Peg the Olympic champion in. Oh, that's awesome. And that I mean, there's not a lot of people who can who can uh, can reference that moment in history. Uh, but I think I'd add another point is because this is one of the appeals of long distance running is that you know you you can't go to the Super Bowl and catch a pass by Peyton Manning or get in the World Series and have a pitch thrown at your head. Uh, but in the marathon, you can stand on the same starting line as the best runners in the world. And admittedly, uh, back when I was starting into the marathon, you could stand almost next to them. Now there's 40,000 others on the starting line, but you are sharing the same competition space with uh, the key athletes in the world in your sport. Yeah, and that's powerful. And people who don't run and aren't don't, haven't been a part of that community before, once they jump in, that's why there's such an addicting community. That's why people stick with it for so long because it is kind of a family. It's pretty neat. Uh, it's a pretty neat situation, I think. Certainly is. All right, Hal, we're going to move on to Athlete on Fire. I think everybody has an idea. If you guys, if you guys want to learn more, go to HalHigdon.com. Um, I'm, I'm not dealing with a guy who's been around for a few years. He has a huge, huge piece of work. You know, everything he's done would take me hours to go over. So go to HalHigdon.com. We're going to move on with the show. Uh, Athlete on Fire is, is more about the physical and mental capacity to, to compete at a high level. And before we really get into that, uh, if you could take a second and give me a good quote or mantra that, that you fall back on. Well, it may sound a little silly to you, but when people come up to me at a marathon expo and ask for the final word of advice, I always tell them, start slow. And um, that's one of the dangers if you have too excited at the starting line and the people, the spectators are cheering for you, suddenly realize that you've gone through the first mile or two, 30 or 60 seconds or even more faster than your pace and you're cooked. You're going to pay for it uh, 20 or so more miles along the way. So starting slow is really the key. But I also suggest that starting slow is is true even in your training because I think you do need to start at a very low level, maybe even developing a base of, uh, uh, of running before you even challenge the, the distance of the marathon. And a lot of runners do half marathons first. So I think that could be a mantra that uh, will take you to the finish line. Yeah, those are great. And, you know, I, I like to go from the quote straight into adversity because every athlete's run into it. Can you think of a time when, when you thought that you were 100% prepared and you went out there and, and nothing worked and you just absolutely failed? Well, I think you have to be willing to fail if you, if you deserve success. And uh, certainly uh, one of my goals uh, growing up, um, you know, was to win the Boston Marathon. And, uh, in fact, in 1964, rather than focusing on a, making the Olympic team that year, I focused on winning the Boston Marathon and uh, went into that race fully prepared, uh, best trained. I'd finally figured out my, uh, uh, the right training I was doing and ran up with the front leaders, as I usually did, uh, for uh, most of the race and about 17 or 18 miles when we moved into the, uh, the infamous Newton Hills. I, uh, a little bit before them, I took the lead and pressed my way up the first hill and then pressed my way up the second hill and... And then all of a sudden I looked to the left, and here was Aurelie Vandendriesch, the European champion, uh, coming by with the press truck in front of him. And the press truck passed on, and uh, he passed on to eventually win the race, and I sort of faded off to oblivion. Well, oblivion to me was uh, fifth place in the Boston Marathon, and uh, uh, also uh, the fastest American 
that day, uh, my personal record, but at the same time, uh, I had to cry after I crossed the finish line because I knew that I never would be able to summon the time and effort to uh, focus my energy on winning Boston. It was something I just would never do, and basically I had to go on with uh, uh, the rest of the life. And I think, again, um, we need to be willing to fail if we deserve success. That's awesome, Hal. And I, just, just personally, one of my biggest goals this year was just to be bold, and and that means putting yourself out there athletically and in business and everything. And and failing leads to your next success almost almost every single time in my experience. And and that's a really I, I think I'm, you know look at the baseball players. Uh, every time they come to the plate, they fail one out of every three times, and those are the best ones, you know. So yeah. as runners, we can afford a few little failure too. Hal, you're you're now like one of my best friends. Mentioning baseball, that was my sport. I played in college. I don't get a lot of a lot of baseball references on here, so I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm a White Sox fan. <laughs> oh, nice, very nice. All right, okay. so I'm going to do something a little bit different with you for this next this next piece. We're going to go physical, then we're going to go mental. So what I want you to do, because you've competed at a high level and you're at a different point in your life right now, I want you to tell me an answer for then, like in the '60s when you're running at a high level. And now, what your habits are. So, back then, did you have any weird or funny superstitions or habits that, that you did for, for competition, physically? No, not really. I'm not a person of uh, superstitions. And, um, you know, even back then, we hadn't figured out that spaghetti was good for you the night before the race. You know, my training program uh, back, uh, not training, but training meal uh, when I was in college was lean beef, you know, and that does not work on a, on a marathon. So I think I'm a pretty normal man. I don't go in for fads. I don't go in for superstitions. I just sort of go to the line, and certainly I have my routine of warming up and everything and and, and compete. In fact, I remember uh, in 1975, I was uh, at the World Masters Championships in Toronto, Canada. It was the first World Masters Championships in staying... Um, outside away from where the track was we were driving to the track and i looked up ahead and a black cat crossed our path and i thought you know i'm going to prove that superstition does not work and i did and came away with a uh, a victory that uh, the day with a time that uh, remains even these uh, what 40 45 years afterwards uh, uh, is the american masters record so uh, black cats don't scare me <laughs> actually that could be a new book it could be chase the black cat you can hire little black cats to run ahead of you and you just chase them down the course that'd be great okay except that uh, I, I sort of like cats I don't want to chase them but <laughs> alright so physically back then back in the 60s what what would a week look like what was your mileage like what was your mentality for how you trained physically back then well when I was training for the marathons I gradually built my mileage up from what might be called a normal 70 miles a week to 80, 90, 100. And uh, that was about the time the parts started coming off the, uh, uh, the machine. Uh, uh, I was sort of right at that, that edge where one false step uh, was going to send me into the abyss. So I had to train very, very, very carefully uh, to get up into that level. But once I did get into that level, the amount of uh, training that I was doing twice a day uh, workouts, uh, um, 10, 15 mile runs being ordinarily ordinary runs, I was able to hit a, a very high level of uh, uh, success. And, you know, it was, 
you know, obviously he was taking a lot of energy. He was taking time away from other things I might be doing. But, you know, I was driven at that time, and I was focused on, on my goals, and uh, um, I just did what I had to do. So same question for today, this week. What, what, what did you do this week active? Um, with the weather, I was sort of stuck indoors a little bit because I can't get up on my bike. I'm, I'm very much more varied in my physical activities these days. I still participate in running races. I say participate rather than compete because I'm just basically uh, running in the back of the pack, happy to be out there with a lot of good runners. Maybe don't even do that many races, maybe three or four a year, no marathons right now, although I haven't given up and said I'll never run a marathon before. So more often my activities is to be out on a bicycle, and I've got two or three favorite coffee shops that are anywhere from a 5 to 10 to 15-mile round trip. And uh, I know my wife and I, you know, for recreation and enjoyment and for social activity, we will bike off to a neighboring coffee shop, and we will sit down, and often we see the same people we see at that coffee shop all the time. So it becomes a social thing for me. I also work out in the gym with uh, regularity, uh, swim in the pool, uh, run in the water, uh, do whatever it takes uh, to maintain uh, physical activity. I'm probably a much well round, better rounded athlete now than I ever was during my competitive career. Oh, that's awesome. And, and the lifestyle is just amazing. You're, you're thinking at a high level. You're, you're doing some amazing things still. And I think it's to me, it's very inspiring. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. So let's go like away from like the superstitious habit. Is there a real habit that you can contribute to your success athletically and as a writer in business? Well, I think I'm very organized. Um, I, I was organized certainly in my running, and my running taught me to be better organized because you know you can't fit in a hundred miles of running a week unless you organize your time and are able to not merely manage the hour in the morning and hour in the afternoon that you might be working out, but also manage everything that goes in between it. Uh, I grew up in an era when runners could not earn prize money, so I had a, like all the other track athletes at the time, had to work a nine-to-five job and also had a wife and three kids and, you know, maintaining a happy family life, doing things with everybody. So it does take a lot of organization, and this is no different than the average uh, woman, particularly even more than the men, uh, does these days with her full-time job and the kids and the cooking and the things like that and her husband as well. So I think, you know, organization is the key to being a good athlete, but it's also an organization is the key to being a good rider because if you get up in the morning and you sit down in front of your typewriter, computer now, and you can't think of anything to say or write and you get stuck, you're never going to be a success as a writer. So I've always had that good organizational ability. And I think that's sort of what went into the successful writing of 409-43 because what happened is, is after the bombs went off, uh, a lot of the runners who had participated in the race that day began writing in their blogs and posting to their Facebook pages, and uh, I saw these marvelous, wonderful stories, and uh, over a period of several weeks had accumulated uh, the stories, the blogs, the reports uh, uh, of uh, close to 75 different runners, and it was, the book really was a man... Uh, 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 
it needed me to manage uh, their experience and blend those 75 runners and what they saw and felt into a single narrative. So it was like the reader is running the Boston Marathon, but uh, running the Boston Marathon with 75 pairs of uh, eyes to uh, tell what happens today. And certainly I think the book is about much more than the bombing because up until about uh, page 87 or whatever page it is in the book, you know, it's a joyous experience. Only when the bombs went off did things turn dark. But uh, really, when you look at somebody who had four hours out on the Boston Marathon course with people cheering them every step of the way, and then boom, uh, you really had uh, both levels of experience, uh, the joy and, and the doom. Yeah, for sure. So one more mental piece before we move on to the last segment. Can you tell tell the runners out there what is some some place mentally that you should never go? Everybody has points on what you should do. What what is one thing you should never do when you're running a marathon? Yeah, I hate to get into never rules, you know, but I think what you want to do if you want success in the marathon is to concentrate on what you're doing. And if you're interested in a fast time, a PR, a BQ, a Boston qualifier, then you need to focus on what you're doing. So I guess you might say that a never might be to never high-five kids along the crowd, uh, to never run with a companion and spend the whole race talking to them, uh, to never let your mind drift, to never listen to music or do the other fun things, which is part of the enjoyment of the marathon. But when you want to run very, very fast, then I think you need to focus entirely, literally on every step that you take, all 26 miles, 385 yards of concentration is not easy that's one of the toughest parts about running is to be able to concentrate to be able to focus and to be able to get every last ounce of uh, talent that you have and lay it down on the pavement and that, and that's pretty cool because in the book you mentioned one of the elites uh, uh flanagan i think it was who caught herself yeah Shlane flanagan and she she caught herself kind of getting caught up in, in the magic of Boston because there's so right. many people supporting. And for that split second, she's like, oh, my goodness, I have to get back on track here. And, and that's just, I mean, that's there's no room for error at that level. Right, and Shalane came from Boston. You know, it was her city, and this was the first time after a hugely successful track career, which continues today, to be running the Boston Marathon. And, you know, part of her was saying, I want to experience this. I want to have fun, but on the other hand, you don't beat the Kenyans by having fun in the race. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. He came very, very close last year. She'll be running uh, Boston again this year, I believe, and uh, I'll be cheering for her all the way. Yeah, me too. Yeah, she's a, she's an amazing runner, and, and, and Goucher and, and a lot of those runners are just, they're making strides. It's going to be pretty interesting this year, I think. All right, so we're going to go to the last segment. It's called Athlete Inspired. But before we do that, I always I always do like a fun quiz or a fun little uh, Q&A, like quick hitter right now. And for me, if you want to play along here, like I go through my life. 70s, I was just born. 80s for me was playing around w- with my dad in the front yard. Like that's all I can remember. 90s was my athletic career, playing baseball in college. 2000s was, was my wife and kids being born. And, and now we're up to date. So I'd say Athlete on Fire is the, the teens. So I'm going to go through the decades. If you can just really quick tell me what that decade meant to you, I think that would be really cool. Okay. All right. So you were, you were born in the early 30s, correct? I was uh, born in 1931, and the Depression was going on, but my father had a job, and so I was totally unaware of 
um, what it was, and I did all the kid things, you know, went ice skating uh, uh, during the uh, winter and uh, uh, during the summer. Um, if I wasn't at the beach, I'd be on my bicycle and maybe biking over to the Museum of Science and Industry on the south side and just in, in, in enjoying life. And, uh, of course, into the 40s, by now I'm into uh, high school. Those are my high school years, and um, I like to feel that I was a sort of a pretty clueless, totally inadequate, I can't understand why any girl would want to go out with me type male, uh, like every other teenage boy that's come through, and um, enjoyable. I would find uh, my talent in running. I began to do it, but had not really achieved a great deal of success, had uh, um, not broken five minutes for the mile, and that seems pretty slow these days because later I was running that fast for six miles or more. Uh, so um, enjoyed that and, and was able to go to a very good school, Carleton College, where I achieved success not only as, um, as a runner but also, I think, as a, as a person. You know, it was a very enjoyable time for me. Spent two years in the Army, which were totally horrible, but in some respects I would hate to have missed the experience that I had at that time. Uh, met my wife. Uh, got married in 1958, so I guess you could say the 60s for me were the, uh, was the time of uh, raising the kids. And we had three kids in uh, strong succession. Uh, uh, they were growing up, and, uh, and it was fun to be with. I used to try to uh, blend my running activities with my family activities and do things that were fun. So one summer, for example, we rented a house on... Cape Cod and spent three weeks on Cape Cod where I was running road races a couple of times a, uh, uh, a week and uh, eventually wound up writing an article on, uh, for it on Sports Illustrated. And uh, at the same time, my career as a freelance writer was, uh, was, was moving forward too and certainly into the 70s, by which time I had I'd grown older. But along came uh, the Masters running movement, and uh, 1971, I turned 40, and they had uh, special competition, uh, American championships and even world championships for Masters runners. And I sort of felt a little bit frustrated by my early running career because, uh, you know, I got a slow start, and I never quite achieved the success that my talents dictated. So it really wasn't until I was a... A master runner in the 70s that I became one of the, the best master's distance runners in the, in the country and even in the world winning four world championships uh, the final one in 1981 and um, the 80s by that time running had become a important sport uh, and uh, runner's world is, had developed uh, into uh, a magazine with uh, 500,000 circulation and uh, a big budget, and as the 80s developed, I became their main man for uh, writing training articles, and uh, uh, so I was very successful at that that level. Always had been very successful as a freelance writer, but now I was able to merge my hobby with my occupation. And then into the 90s, um, I became involved with a contract with the Chicago Marathon, and they asked me to answer questions to, for athletes online. That led me into the, the Internet, but I was also producing training programs, developed a training program for the Chicago Marathon, which uh, 
which was hugely successful with the, the local runners, the Chicago Area Runners Association, and uh, that developed into a series of training programs as, as we now went into the uh, millenniums. Let's see, I did get through the 90s, didn't I? Didn't I? Yep, yeah, you did. The, uh, the era of the Internet, because we put my training programs online, I, you know, put together a website. I really think I was way ahead of the, the curve in, in anticipating uh, the electronic revolution that we are now having. And, and uh, now my presence on Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, I posted a little comment on my Facebook page this afternoon, or actually this morning, uh, well, are you going to run a marathon today, this year, and if not, why? And literally within an hour, I had like 30,000, 40,000 people that viewed that, and a couple of hundred that commented about the, the, the races that we're going to run. So I maintain uh, these electronic connections, and certainly it was because of my presence uh, online on Facebook and elsewhere through the Internet that I was able to collect the 75 stories or the 75 people whose stories became part of my uh, latest book, uh, 40943, which in all honesty I think is the best thing I've ever written, but uh, I guess maybe I let my ego run away with me on that. Did I get through my lifespan? That was awesome. Holy cow. So I have like two, two thoughts. One, my, my, you know, my grandparents are the same age as you. I can't even get them on the phone half the time, and you are putting together amazing social media content. People are engaging with you all over the world. Uh, it's that that piece alone is inspirational to me. Um, yeah, I think the, I was very fortunate. Uh, I sort of have to nod towards Andy Burfoot, who, uh, in the middle of the nineties, was uh, the, the editor at uh, Runner's World, and he got me to do a question and answer column on AOL, and it only lasted for a couple of years uh, uh, between the magazine and AOL. Uh, is, does anybody still have emails with AOL at the end of it? I don't know. But, uh, but it did get me involved in the Internet. I was really sort of a forward uh, position because of Ambi and other people that sort of were my, my guide dogs in, in getting uh, electronic. But I'm not a total electronic genius. We were driving a couple of weeks ago down to Daytona to attend the races down there, and my wife and I were trying to get the GPS machine in our car working, and our granddaughter... Um, was coming with us because my son David works for NASCAR, and while unbeknownst to us, I saw it later, she was tweeting and said, uh, Grandpa and Grandma uh, working with their GPS is like a sitcom. So <laughs> that's the next generation of Higdon humorous. <laughs> well, I, ha- I have a theory. I think GPS is the devil. <laughs> if, you, if your if your eyes are on the on the GPS and, and, the, and the restaurant's right in front of you, you got a problem there. Anyway, <laughs> it's so funny. So we're going to go to Athlete Inspired. we got about you know, five or ten minutes left here, Hal. I, pre- I appreciate your time up to this point, and uh, I think this, this last part will be kind of fun too. So, so this is just takeaways. I have a couple more topics I want to talk about regarding Boston, and, and then we'll finish up. So the first question is, is legacy important to you? Um, I'm not sure it is. You know, we're here just once, and uh, you know, once we go, uh, is it important to leave a residue of yourself? I'm sort of maybe living in the moment. Uh, I'm enjoying myself. I've been very lucky uh, at a time when a lot of people are long retired. Uh, I'm able to do things. Uh, I'm able to enjoy life. I'm able to have social friends who are not runners. Um, I, I'm able to, able to enjoy music. The Chicago Symphony, the, the Jacksonville Symphony, and we got tickets to see 
Pink Martini coming through Jacksonville in a couple of weeks, a great little classic rock band. And uh, the running that I still do somewhat, but not as fast as ever. So um, really, I'm really not too much worried about what happens uh, to me afterwards in terms of legacy. No, that's great. Is there somebody in your life right now that's inspiring you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I enjoy every moment of it. You know, there's just uh, a lot of fun in my life. And, and, you know, I look forward to Saturday morning, my wife and I, traditionally when we were in Chica- in, uh, in uh, Ponte Vedra Beach, is the day when we get on our bikes, the two of us, and follow a nice, beautiful, scenic ride up to Panera. Uh, you know, the, the, the bread coffee shop up there, and uh, I just love doing it. I just love being with her. I love sitting around and talking and having a coffee. And I never liked coffee until about 10 years ago, it, until it became a social thing with me, having a, a bear claw or a cobblestone. So, you know, in some respects, having that Saturday bike ride with my wife is important to me now as winning the Boston Marathon was to me uh, 40, 50 years ago. Oh, that's great. And, you know, so, so many people name the inspiring people in their lives that they're living with, you, usually that's that's the case. It's they're not reaching out for like the Michael Jordans or or the the, the biggest runners out there. They're they're naming somebody that they see every day that inspires them. I think that's really cool. Well, I think I've been very very lucky. My wife and I have been very very lucky. We have three marvelous kids. Uh, my son David, who works for NASCAR. My daughter uh, Laura, who works for JCP, and my son Kevin, who's uh, in finance with a hospital in Chicago and nine marvelous uh, uh, grandkids who are just sort of trickling their way out through the, the college era now. And uh, uh, I, I just have uh, been very fortunate, blessed with a great family, and uh, that's what counts. Yeah, and, and I can tell in your voice that you're content, and that's, that's really important. That's probably more important than legacy ever would be, so that's great. All right, so we're going to move on down the line. Do you have a favorite book that you want to recommend? Uh, well, it would be my, my last one, but that's sort of too egocentric. I think if I had to pick a single book that's my favorite book, it would be Ernest Hemingway's The Long Man and the, the Old Man and the Sea. Excuse me. Um, I happened to be in Germany at the time, and I think the book had actually been out for about a year. I hadn't gotten around to reading it, but I was looking around in the library at the uh, the base that I was in in uh, Kitzingen, Germany, and happened to pick Hemingway's book off the shelf. Um, glanced through it, started to read it, um, stood there reading it for a while, and then sat down reading it and finished the, the book before I, I got out of the uh, library. And it was just a marvelously written book with a, a clear and simple style. I think Hemingway has inspired me because of the simplicity of his writing, and that's not an insult, it's the ultimate compliment. And uh, I think, you know, I, in my writing, I tend to be clear and precise. I've written several uh, books for, for young children, one called, well, you're going to appreciate this, The Hearts That Played in the Center Field, a book about baseball. Yes. It eventually into an ABC uh, television uh, special, and I didn't really need to change my style going writing from adults to going to writing for, for young adults and even children. So, um, you know, I think uh, Hemingway certainly has inspired me with that book. Oh, that's all. You know, I'll appreciate that because I play baseball, and I'll appreciate it because I have two little guys under three years old. So maybe I'll have to go grab that one. That's pretty cool. It's still uh, <laughs> available on Kindle. Uh, I guess it's no longer in print. It went through about a half a dozen uh, different editions, one of my most successful uh, books ever. A lot of runners think I only write about running, but, you know, I've written about the Civil War. I've written about crime. 
uh, written about a little bit of everything. Oh, that's awesome, Hal. And you know, on my show notes on athleteonfire.com, I will post a bunch of your work on there. I think that would be pretty neat for people to, to go fiddle around with. Good. All right, so I'm going to move down the line a little bit. So uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Jimmy V on the ESPYs gave this amazing speech, and it was very inspiring to me. And there's three things he said you should do every day, and I'm going to ask you about those three things, okay? So he said that you should laugh. So what makes you, what makes you laugh every day? Um, everything, you know, just life in itself. Uh, talking to you on the uh, telephone, uh, uh, going out uh, over the air, it makes me laugh. I think, you know, I've enjoyed uh, the experience of uh, of having fun with you. Uh, last night I talked to the uh, Florida Striders and came up with a couple of good punchlines that uh, made the whole people sitting out there in the audience break up, and uh, it's fun to me. Nice. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum. You know, what are you so passionate about on a daily basis that, that brings you to tears? I think I'm passionate about my writing, uh, but I'm also passionate about having the best possible body that I can have. And I'm not talking about an Arnold Schwarzenegger body, but I'm having a level of fitness so that when people see me and uh, find out my age, which I cleverly try to disguise, uh, they're surprised that... Uh, you know, I'm not 10 or 20 years younger, and I think it's the same thing with my wife, but people think that she is much younger than she is, and it's not necessarily because of the way we look. It's basically the way we act, and I remember being at the World Masters Championships in Gothenburg, Sweden. This would be back in 1977, I guess it was, and there was a, a sprinter there from Scotland, and uh, he was 91 years old, and I saw him walking with another older athlete uh, at the Tivoli, the recreation uh, park there, and he looked like a young man. And it wasn't because of the way he looked, it was the way he moved. And so uh, while I certainly am not as fast in the 10K as I once was, uh, I think I move better than most people my age. And, um, you know, that's part of things that is part of my life. Oh, that's great. And, you know, I I purposely didn't tell the audience your age because I was going to let you kind of bring that up because I've heard you speak before. Uh, you don't sound your age. You don't act your age. You, you've got good insights. You flow through through a conversation. And, uh, and as far as the physical piece, I mean, just listening to your lifestyle is pretty cool. So I think, I think listening, you know, for, for some of our older listeners, just use this as inspiration to get moving. It's never too late to, to start that lifestyle that the Hal's living right now. And uh, lastly, I know you, you do a lot of thinking, but the last part of the Jimmy V thing is you need to use your brain every day. So what do you do consciously to think every single day? What do I do consciously to think every day? I, I basically uh, read the newspaper every morning. I jump on my bike and go to the gate store. It's a convenience store. It's about six cents of a mile. Uh, this be, gets me outside regardless of what's happening. Uh, pick up a paper pick up the local paper uh, or pick up the New York Times and bike back, and then I have my breakfast. I have a good uh, meal, and uh, I think that uh, that starts my day off uh, very well and uh, gets me into the flow of things. Awesome, Hal. So, you know, I was introduced to you by Ray Charbonneau, and uh, he's working on a collaboration called The 27th Hour, and and it's going to benefit One Fund Boston. And if you want to take a minute and just talk about your involvement with that project, I think that would be really neat. Yeah, Ray came to me shortly after the uh, the Boston Marathon explosions, and he was putting together uh, some writings uh, on the race uh, for this book that was, you're right, raise funds for the 
the Boston Marathon victims, and he picked out a an article, the article, first article that I'd written in uh, about the Boston Marathon, Sports Illustrated, 1963, on the run from dogs and people. So that has become a chapter in the book, and I'm there with a lot of other uh, talented writers, and uh, hopefully the book will do well and raise some money. Awesome, Hal. So let me give you a, a second just to tell people how to get a hold of you, connect with you on social media. Go for it. Well, I'm on Facebook, and you just go in and look for me, uh, Facebook, uh, Hal Higdon's Marathon. My Hal Higdon site, Facebook, limits you to 5,000 people. It's been closed off for a long time, but anybody can go into Facebook or look for me at Higdon Marathon on Twitter and uh, also my website, halhigdon.com. That has links to everything else. All right. Thanks so much. So let, let's pull this thing full circle, Hal. We're going to go back to the very beginning of the interview. I asked you what you were doing when you were 15 years old. Uh, you said you were with like all the models in Chicago. So uh, wh- why don't you give that 15-year-old version of yourself some advice right now? Well, I think I would offer the advice that uh, just follow your own goals, follow your own talents, and you never know which way you're going to be torn. I actually came out of that uh, era, thinking I was going to be an artist, I wound up discovering that I had more talent as a, a writer, so uh, young people also have to determine what's going to work for them, and uh, go for it. Awesome, Hal. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Good to speak to you. Hey, and this is for everybody else out there listening. This is how you live a life. I, I've been talking to Hal Higdon today. My name is Scott Jones, and he is absolutely an athlete on fire. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Athlete on Fire. Stay fired up with additional resources and information at athleteonfire.com.